Excellent. You can be seated. Well, thank you again for gathering with us here at Mission Church. It is, again, um, as it is every week, that God affords me and graces me uh, with the opportunity to be here. And uh, I just greatly appreciate him. And like I said, there's, there's no greater joy um, than me, for me, uh, than one, to be a follower of Jesus, courtesy of his grace and mercy, and then two, uh, to be allowed to be a member here at Mission. And so uh, let's get started here this morning. Um, today we continue in a sermon series called King and Kingdom where we are working strategically uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, last week Pastor Justin preached a text uh, at the end of uh, chapter 15. And if you didn't get to be here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But just to catch you up to speed as these sermons kind of build on each other, uh, what I'm going to do today is, is really a two-part series um, I'm, we're going to do one half of it today, and then part two of it is going to be next week, because I, I figured you guys didn't want to hear me for two hours, so we cut it down um, for you all, for your listening pleasure, okay? So, um, Pastor Justin is preaching this text. Last week, we see in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, um, that Jesus does something that is out of his character, and typically out of his ministry. Um, he goes to where the Gentiles are. And uh, one of the things that it's very important for us to understand is that this would have been a very uncomfortable situation, especially for those 12 men that are following Jesus. These are devout Jews. And so Jesus going to a Gentile land was one thing, but Jesus going to a Gentile land and performing the same miracles that he has been performing amongst the Jews it was a major, major reckoning of their faith and their traditions. And so Jesus, being the strategic person that he is, again, with the Jews, he has cast out demons, he's healed them, um, he has even fed them through the feeding of the multitude, or the 5,000, and now Jesus is doing that for Gentiles. It can be often difficult for us to pick on up one of the major themes that we see within the New Testament is this issue of racism that is often overlooked. And yet Jesus here is combating all of this. If Jesus was to show up here to Mission Church, many of us probably would not recognize him. Um, but if we did, and Jesus started preaching, teaching, healing people, um, you know, working these miracles, we would somewhat expect that, wouldn't we? We're his people. We would expect him to do that. But imagine him coming to mission this morning and then leaving here and going to the Muslim mosque down the road and doing the same miracles. This is a better picture of what Jesus has just done. All right? We expected, the Jews expected this from the Messiah. They expected these things from the prophets. But in no way were those things ever for the dogs, for the Gentiles. And yet Jesus is rocking those 12 men's world. He has just taught them that in his character and nature, that Jesus is not merely about just the Jews, but that Jesus is ultimately about the nations. He is about every color, every tribe, and as we learned last week, that one day those nations will be celebrated, those tribes will be celebrated, those colors will be celebrated as we become one as the bride of Christ. And so we celebrate diversity. We see all colors. The gospel goes to the ends of the world, and that is our desire as well. In many ways, the disciples are like the Karate Kid. Not that remake. That was terrible. I'm talking about the real one, Daniel's son, all right? And Daniel's son, if you remember the movie, um, he is, you know, painting the fence waxing the floor. He's doing all of these remedial, I think he's mopping, doing all sorts of things. He sees the bird, the crane, right? He, he sees all of these tasks as Mr. Miyagi is making him do these things, but he has no idea what Mr. Miyagi is trying to do to him until it's time to fight. 
In many ways, Jesus is concerned, yes, about the masses. He, is, he has compassion on them. But brothers and sisters, it is important for us to get in the Gospel of Matthew, and I would say in all of the Gospels, that Jesus, though concerned about the masses, is ultimately concerned about the ragamuffin 12 men that he is pouring his life into. That is his ultimate teaching. Yes, he heals. Yes, he feeds. But it's all in order to teach these 12 men. Jesus is taking them through a boot camp, and we don't see the fruit of this boot camp till after his resurrection. But, but Jesus is doing these things as he is ultimately revealing his character and his nature and also equipping these disciples for his mission. As we read, or Stephanie read in verses 1 through 4, I'm going to have to skip through some of these things. Uh, there are multiple sermons here, but um, one of the things that we, we see here is that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they come to Jesus. And what are they demanding? They are demanding a sign. If you don't know this, the Pharisees are the real religious group of Jews. Um, they know all of the Old Testament. They've even created books on top of the Old Testament on how to live that out. These are the conservative men of the law and tradition. But they're working now with a group called the Sadducees, which is another group of Jews. And these Sadducees are very liberal. They're the wealthy class of Jews who sought power and often worked with the Romans. And oftentimes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at odds. Imagine the Republicans and the Democrats. A lot of times at odds, and yet in this moment, in this scene, where do we see them? They're working together. Two enemies now become one in order to try and overthrow this Jesus. This provided them the very rare opportunity for uh, them to join fo forces because they are beginning to realize that they are losing their kind of religious cred and also their political uh, credibility with the Romans. So they come to Jesus, they see his abilities, they're like, come on, show us another sign, but they're ultimately wanting to use this sign against Jesus. But Jesus refuses to do anything else. He reminds them, hey, you can look up at the sky and somewhat predict the weather. It's a prediction. But I am essentially, I am in the flesh I am among you. I am dwelling with you, and yet you do not see me as God. You do not see me as Messiah. You do not see me as Lord. And why? As we've seen a continual thread through the Gospel of Matthew, it is because they are spiritually blind. So what does Jesus do? Hops in a boat, goes to the lake. That's my kind of Jesus. A, a lake, boat, Jesus is an amazing thing. Jesus, once again, to get away from folks, hops in a boat, goes in the lake, and travels uh, to the other sea of the Sea of Galilee. So he, he's with these disciples. They've just fed the Gentile multitude. Jesus leaves seven baskets of bread with the disciples. Seven, as we saw the first time when he feeds the, the, the Jewish people, he leaves 12 baskets for the disciples. This time he leaves seven. Seven in um, the study of numbers, especially biblical numbers, is the number of God, is the number of completion. And so Jesus leaves seven baskets once again for the disciples and they get across the lake and what are the disciples concerned with look at verse 5 when the disciples reached the other side they'd forgotten to bring any bread they'd gotten in a hurry they'd gotten in a rush and they had left the most perfect bread they'd ever eaten probably on the other side of the lake, even the disciples are still concerned about where they're going to get their food from. Haven't they learned by now? And immediately Jesus goes and he says this statement to them. He says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven, as you know, if you, it's kind of like yeast, all right? It is a rising agent within baking. Um, sometimes it's used in a positive way, like in Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, but here is going to be used in a negative way. Jesus is warning these 12 men. 
He is warning them of the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He's warning them of becoming too liberal in their thinking, too um, indulgent in their activity. But he's also telling them and warning them not to become overtly religious, not to become legalistic. Isn't that the tension that you and I are constantly living in? You know, when things come up that are political, um, that it would be a whole lot easier just to go kind of and be way liberal, wouldn't it? Just go with the flow. This seems right. This is where culture is heading. Man, let's, let's just skip over these passages and let's just let's go with the current. Or to be on the flip side and say, if you do this, there is no hope for you, right? Or you can't do that and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, we kind of live in this tension. Jesus has a, t- a way of being the thread in the middle, that there is a way to live that is a Christ way to live, that is Christ-centered, gospel-centered, and indulgence, rebelliousness, or religiosity is not the way Jesus is the way. So, we have this, and Jesus is warning them. But again, the disciples, like us, are what? Somewhat slow. They still think that Jesus is talking about the bread. Look at what it says. But, so Jesus says, warns them, you know, do, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And all of a sudden, the disciples start talking about, but, 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 but we brought no bread. So Jesus is talking about leaven. We forgot the bread. What is Jesus trying to do here? Jesus says, oh, ye live of faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the five thousand? So he's reminding them again of his character, of his nature. He is the perfect bread maker. He is ultimately the bread of life. Jesus is firm but patient. He is not talking about physical leaven, but he is talking about false teaching. See, Paul is going to kind of, um, you know, imply this in some of his writings as well. In, in a lot of his writings, he's, he's gone to these people, he's planted these churches, and, and he, he tells them in his writing, hey, I am fearful that when I leave, what's going to happen? that false teachers are going to be welcomed in and you are going to uh, divert from your original course setting. This is a constant fear amongst Paul, I would say, of the disciples and even of pastors today because false teaching is so prevalent that oftentimes we don't even recognize it as false teaching. Jesus is warning against this. Paul, warning against this. Pastor Eric, warning you against this. And this is, it's got me in trouble before, but this is why when certain people are telling me they're reading certain books by certain authors, I have lovingly rebuked them. You shouldn't read that, all right? Um, When I see people, and I, I don't do this on Facebook, just this is free, time out, getting in a Facebook argument never works. Time in. All right, so um, in this battle that we have, um, you know, people will post things that are supposedly from God, dash God, that God never said or implies. Um, Believing in a prosperity gospel, I'll straight up tell you, that is straight from the pits of hell itself. And yet, there are missionaries taking from America a belief of prosperity gospel, going to places like Africa, and it is exploding, and it is false. Jesus warns against this. Paul warns against this. We, your pastors here at Mission, and we, we do this in love. We warn you, be, know who you are reading, and read the Bible more than you read others. He tells us here in Caesarea Philippi is where they are heading in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm going to give you a little history lesson. I don't want to bore you. I'm going to do this very quickly. 
Caesarea Philippi is now inhabited by the Romans. Again, this is a Gentile place. It is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has gone up, or I think it's up north. He's gone across the Sea of Galilee and travels now 25 miles to the town, to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Now this is very important. Caesarea Philippi sits at, the, at a plateau called Mount Hermon. And Caesarea Philippi was originally a pagan city, okay? Even in the Old Testament, it's talked about, and they would worship the god Baal there. And so you could go um, to the stories of Elijah and see all, all kinds of stories inside of the Old Testament about this worship of this false god named Baal. And so this city was a pagan city where in the Old Testament, um, that's where they worshiped Baal. Um, but it has been a history of many gods being worshipped there. Um, by the time that the Romans had got there, the city at that time, before they changed the name, was actually called uh, like Pananera or Pananeras. Um, and it is the city of the god Pan. All right? Not Peter Pan, not that boy. It's always played by a woman for some reason. All right? Flying through the air. Not that guy. This guy. This god was, if you've ever seen in like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, several different types of movies, uh, mythological kind of beast that is like goat boy, like he's part goat, part man, right? So man, torso, goat, body, plays a flute, all right? That is Pan, all right? That is the god Pan, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually come back to that next week. It's actually extremely important. But Pan was worshipped for hundreds, if not thousands of years in um, Panania, or in now what is called Caesarea Philippi. He was the god of the, the shepherds and the fields, but ultimately is the god or one of the gods um, that is a fertility god. And so whenever you say fertility god, typically there are hugely immoral activities that are taking place within this city because they believe the worship of fertility God meant you must engage in sexual activity in just a disgusting variety of ways. At the base of one of the cliffs, people built temples to this pagan god Pan, this goat man, um, and worshipped him. Um, then the Romans overtake it, Caesar Augustus has died, and in order to honor Caesar, they name it Caesarea, which means of Caesar, Philippi, which was one of the names of one of his sons. No longer do they simply worship Pan, but they worship Caesar. One of the most common statements in this city and in this time was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord of Lords. If you were the son of Caesar, you were considered to be a son of God. Do you see what happens here? In the Old Testament, man worshipped false god. New Testament, or even in the Old Testament as well, man worships Pan, man worships false god. But by the time that Caesar, and by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, no longer are they worshipping the images of these false idols, but they are worshipping man as God. Caesar is deity. Caesar is God to these people. They are worshiping him as such. It was a huge place of immorality and indulgence. And so Jesus is here. He is in that place. And he asks a question to his disciples. Who do people say I am? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? See, brothers and sisters, Jesus has become very, very popular. Think of the most prestigious athlete, all right? Go Falcons, hope Tom Brady loses tonight. I hope that hurts your feelings. Um, but you think of Tom Brady, this, this guy that's playing tonight, he's, he's, he is the best quarterback, I would say, that has ever existed. He is extremely famous. People love this guy, all right? Jesus has become very 
very popular. He is known amongst Gentile. He is known amongst Jew. And it, it appears as though Jesus is not just asking this question one time, but this is probably a common question. Like, who do these crowds say that I am? And, and some of them say, man, you're John the Baptist. You're kind of the, the reincarnated John the Baptist, which creates all kinds of issues for them to say that. But that's what they said. Um, they quoted and said, maybe he's Elijah, um, the greatest prophet inside of the Old Testament. Maybe he's Jeremiah, the lamenting, passionate um, prophet as well. Um, but they, they make all of these statements in asking Jesus is saying, man, who do the popular people say that I am? Often likes when you talk about um, like LeBron James. What is LeBron James always being compared to? Michael Jordan, Right? There's always this comparison when if you were to ask LeBron James who he wanted to be, he'd probably say, I want to be LeBron James. If you ask Michael Jordan who he wants to be, he's Michael Jordan, so you can't beat the greatest. But you see this comparison. You see this, this wrestling. People are always to say, and we do that as well, well, I liked it, and they were good, but they're not as good as this guy. Maybe they were trying to say that, that Jesus was another forerunner. They could understand that there was something mystical and magical and supreme about this Jesus, but they just really couldn't, they couldn't just come out. The masses could not come out and ultimately say that this guy is the Messiah, that this guy is is the Lord, that he is the long-awaited, appointed one. But know that he's, he's probably like Elijah, like he's a really good Elijah. He's a really good John the Baptist. See, brothers and sisters, many people throughout the world can have positive thoughts toward Jesus. I mean, atheists, agnostics, how many of you have ever heard one of them discredit the actual man, Jesus? Atheists, agnostics, Muslims believe in Jesus and have fondness toward this man. People will walk right up to the line with Jesus. You know, they kind of have a, a distant relationship with Jesus. They're cool with Jesus. They're just not cool with him being God, for one, and they're definitely not cool with the church. You know, they'll say things like, Jesus is a good person. That Jesus is a great example to follow. That Jesus is the greatest man to ever live. Militant atheist and comedian, uh, talk show host uh, Bill Maher. I, I like to listen to Bill Maher. Um, he, he even says this. He says, Jesus as a philosopher is wonderful. There is no greater role model in my view than Jesus Christ. See, Jesus knows this, um, but it's something that we need to get, and it's something that the disciples needed to get. Good thoughts about Jesus do not always equate right thoughts about Jesus. All right? Is Jesus like John the Baptist? Sure. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. John, that's what John the Baptist preached. Elijah perform miracles. Jeremiah, this pray, praying prophet, Jesus is like them, but having good thoughts about Jesus does not always equate right thoughts about Jesus. There is knowing about Jesus, but yet this does not mean that you know Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He asks another question. They say that you're John the Baptist, some others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? This terminology here, who do you, and the emphasis is on the you. It is an emphatic. Jesus is saying, okay, this is what all the masses say, but who do you, Adam, say that I am? Who do you, Thomas, say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is an extremely important question. Brothers and sisters, this is the most important question that any of us could be asked 
and answered by us inside of this room. This is the question that all of humanity, past, present, and future, must come to terms with is who is this Jesus? Not just that he's a good teacher, not just that he is a good rabbi, not that he is just a good person, not that he is just a good role model, but brothers and sisters, stop looking around the room, start looking into your hearts this morning and asking yourself this question, who do I really know Jesus to be? Do I have good thoughts about Jesus, but are they the right thoughts? Are they the biblical thoughts about Jesus? Do I know about Jesus? Can I answer some multiple choice or do I know Jesus? Man, I I don't just know about my wife. I know her like none other on this planet. I know her in a relational way, in an intimate way, in an emotional way. I know her. And likewise, that illustration of marriage is to reflect a deep intimacy, not just knowing some facts about a man, but knowing Jesus. Peter, of course, the boisterous one, we have some Peters in our church, right? We've got some probably some, some Johns that, you know, kind of just want to lay around on Jesus. Um, we, we've got all of those characters probably within our own congregation. But what is the boisterous? He's probably the oldest one. He, he stands up or he's standing in this moment. And what does Peter say? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Aren't you proud of Peter? This guy is getting in trouble with his mouth all the time. And finally, Jesus asks a question, and Peter, boy, you know, just with much pride and zeal, says that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the first time that we see the disciples say that Jesus is the Christ. Being this side of the resurrection, you know, we are spoilt that we have the Scripture. We know the ending of the story. These guys did not. They asked Jesus, and, and Jesus, or they, Jesus asked them, Peter responds, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. What is Jesus the Christ? What does Christ mean? Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus is God's unique son. He's the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies who has come at this appointed time. Now, this is where I would love to go in a history lesson with you in the Old Testament to show you why Jesus had to come when he did on the date that he did, because there are Old Testament prophecies say that the Messiah must come even before Jerusalem is destroyed for the second time. That happens in 70 AD. And where does Jesus come? He comes before that. If he comes after that, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not the Messiah. In this moment, we see this take place inside of this scene as, as these men, they've been walking with Jesus. Yes, they've worshipped him as God, but they've never equated to say that he is the Christ, that he is this Messiah. I'm sure that they've heard him say it. They've heard Jesus talk about it. They've seen Jesus illustrated, but it did not come true for them yet. How do we know this? Verse 17 and Jesus answered him. So Peter answers, look exactly what Jesus says. And, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you catch just what's happened here? The revelation that has now come to Peter is not just Peter simply getting the right answer because he has stored it away in his filing cabinet of his mind. It's not as though he's just taking a test and can quick recall that this is the right answer. Like you're sitting in Sunday school, you know, we tell you all the time as a kid, all right, Ava, if you go to Sunday school and they ask a question, Jesus Bible Christian is probably the answer, right? That is not what Peter is doing here. 
The Bible tells us here in verse 17, it tells us that, that, that the revelation that has come to Peter of him being the one true God, the being the Messiah, it is not something that can be conjured up within himself. It is not an invention of Peter's own will. No, this understanding comes by divine revelation. Divine revelation. It is something much more. Jesus calls Peter... Peter's name is uh, Simon Peter. He probably even had multiple names after that. But Jesus calls him, kind of like my mom would call me Eric Keith, Eric Keith Baker. Um, Jesus calls Peter in this moment. He says, Simon bar Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah. So it's like, it's like he's getting his attention. Like, Simon bar Jonah. Look at this. Like this, and, and if, if we knew Peter... <laughs> we would be astonished as well. Like, look at what's, what's happened to this guy. Like, this is not from Peter. He's just not smart enough to get that. This is from God. The Holy Spirit had, has awakened him. And, and Jesus using this term, it's like saying, man, you did not get this from the, your earthly fathers. Simon, son of Jonah. Your daddy could have taught you all kinds of stuff. Your daddy could have taught you how to be a fisherman. Your daddy could have taught you the Old Testament. Your daddy could have told you, you know, how to, how to skin a lamb and how to hunt, all these sorts of things. But this answer that you have given today by saying that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that did not come from your earthly daddy. It came from God. It came from God. The truth had been heard by Peter. The truth had been suggested to Peter. He's been living with Jesus probably up to two years by now. And then, boom, the light switch goes off. Brothers and sisters, how many times have you ever been reading the Bible and you've read that passage over and over and over and over and over again, but one day you sit down and it's like it opened up for the first time as God ministers to you at your kitchen table where I like to do my devotions and, and God shows up in that moment. Or you have devotional after devotional after devotional after devotion. You don't feel nothing. You don't really learn anything. But yet on that 20th day or that 100th day of doing it, it is like almighty God shows up in your living room, in your bed, at the coffee shop, in your dorm room, that God shows up and the light comes on. This is what has just happened to Peter. See, brothers and sisters, we love the darkness. Do not get this wrong. No one is going to hell that does not want to go there. Your very nature is craving it. It longs for it. It wants to be there. It wants to be separated from the love of God. It is being driven there by your sinful nature. And yet, we are saved by grace, through grace, for grace. It is not only by God who is rich in his mercy, but it is, it is, it is only by God who is rich in his mercy who violates that sinful will and pulls people to himself. This is the revelation of God. There was nothing special inside of Peter to awaken him to this truth. See, all growing up, I've just always been like, man, finally, Peter got the right answer. <laughs> finally. Finally, he, he got an A plus on that test. But what does Scripture reveal to us? It was only because God showed him grace. God showed him mercy. God revealed to him in that moment. Because what is Jesus trying to do? He is trying to treat those 12 prone to wonder men who he really is. Who he really is. There was nothing special inside of Peter. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing special inside of us to awaken our dead heart. You need to understand this theologically. Sometimes I want to ask people, man, what was so good in you that allowed you and afforded you then the opportunity to choose Jesus that, that, that is not inside of these other people? What smarts, what intellect do you have that these others don't? 
But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, brothers and sisters, I have no idea why I'm here today other than Jesus. I have no idea why Jesus summoned me outside of that, that, that dorm room. I mean, I lived with nappy roots. That's a band, rap group. At Western, my hallway smelled like weed. There were guys all around me. And yet, for some reason, the revelation of God, the awakening of God, the quickening of God came to me, bringing humility and an awakening me to God and his merciful work. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, which I encourage you to read, says this, the effectively calling us to Christ, God's Spirit convinces us that we are sinful and miserable, enlightens our minds and renews our wills. This is how he enables us to receive Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. See, when God awakens us, we begin to dive in and to press into the magnitude of his glory. And when we look at that glory and the condition of our depraved hearts, what do we notice? We are not him. And then what does God do? What did God do in your life? Do you know this? Remember it this morning. God, in showing you the depths of your heart, changes that heart. And then changing that heart changes the way that you think. And then from there, changes your very will. It changes your very actions. And all of this is enabled by who? By God, by Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Brothers and sisters, may we be humble coming to the table realizing we brought nothing to the cross but a sinful, diseased, dead heart. And it was the elixir of grace that for some reason was cast upon us and awoken us from that dead grace grave funeral of ourselves, bringing us to life in the person and work of Jesus. I have no hope to save myself this morning. I have no hope to keep myself saved. As a pastor, I must constantly remember that I have no hope to save any of you. No, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness to save me, to keep me saved and is my hope this morning in preaching of the gospel that he would see so fit to save his enemies maybe whom have gathered here this morning but it is not in the words of the preacher remember that it's not in the words of the preacher it is in the words of the spirit and only he can bring a dead man a dead woman to life so what does this reveal about jesus's character Again, where does this happen? It happens in the shadow of a mountain dedicated to the worship of false gods and the worship of man. What is Jesus saying here about himself? This statement, you are the son of the living God, Jesus is declaring that he is the living God. I am he in the midst of all of these ruins to dead gods. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the pointed one. I am the Christ. I am the life. And I've come to give life Jesus didn't say that he came to be a way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. Jesus is declaring this to these men through the revelation of the Spirit working inside of them. Brothers and sisters, during this time, answering this question and saying someone other than Caesar is Lord would have put you in immediate opposition against these false gods and Caesar himself. It was a death wish. If you get to head with us to Niger, which we hope that you do, we'll be sending our first team in June. 
And when we go there, you will quickly realize one of the things is, is these converts do not mess around because it is a death sentence to them because they were devout, raised in Orthodox Muslim lifestyle. And when they convert to Jesus, it is a death to self, many cases death to their own families, and it is a threat upon their life and their well-being. And yet they stay faithful because Jesus has awakened them. See, most people in America believe in Jesus, right? Especially in the South. Most people believe in Jesus. But what Jesus? But what Jesus? The historical Jesus? The political Jesus? The social justice Jesus, the moral teacher Jesus. But do they know, do you know the biblical Jesus? See, the, the fruit of our true belief is always reflected in how we live our lives. Isn't it true that most people believe in a Jesus that will not put them in opposition to anyone or anything? Get that. Do you believe in a Jesus that does not put you in opposition against anyone or anything? And out of love, I tell you, you do not know the Jesus of the Scripture. See, many of us we can drift so far from truth that fiction becomes fact. We can drift so far from truth that fiction becomes fact, that we believe more in legend and myth than we do in truth. There are many people in our, our country and in our world who have strong misconceptions about Jesus. There are, are many people who have lots of beliefs about Jesus, but yet when you open up the Scripture and you see their Jesus and you open up the Scripture, you don't see that Jesus, the real Jesus, and what they are saying. Jesus simply isn't there, but they are 100% convinced. See, our opinions may often be popular, but they may also be untrue. One of my favorite movies growing up was The Wizard of Oz. My sister and I, we were, we were part of that cult. We would practice it. Um, my dad even had a VHS of it. And remember when Michael Jackson like burned half of his hair off in the Pepsi commercial? My dad had that, and that was one of the commercials. Um, and we would just watch it and be like, that's the one! And then we would watch it. Um, Many people, when if you've seen The Wizard of Oz, Oz is a beautiful city. Its asphalt is, is paved with golden streets. Everything is beautiful. It's immaculate. You get all the fields of, before it. You, you get there. There's all these beautiful people. They're, they're mysterious. They're all jolly. You know, they're, they're, they've got the horse of you know, multiple colors, and I mean, it's just absolutely, the Emerald City is absolutely beautiful, and it is centered around all of this, this, this God, this thing that they worship, this, this one that knows all. He is the Wizard of Oz. They are completely, they are dedicating all of their lives to the following after this Wizard of Oz, and yet, what do we learn by the end of the movie? It is just a man. And no matter how much you try to not pay attention to the man behind the green curtain, it is a man. And brothers and sisters, get this. I am convinced, and I'm going to preach a whole sermon, me and Justin, probably next year, because I believe that this is the introduction. I am ever so convinced that the God and the Jesus that many people are claiming to follow inside of America is not the God of the Scripture. 
They believe it exists. They have smiles upon their heads. They have dedicated their lives to this experience. And yet, when they stand upon judgment, Jesus will say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. I did not know you. We've built truth around a lie. Brothers and sisters, when we claim to know Jesus of Scripture, but do not spend time in prayer and study and church life and community and membership and all these sorts of things, then aren't we saying that we are arrogant in suggesting that we know everything about God? That we know everything about, I don't need to read my Bible today, I know everything about Jesus. I don't need to go to missions because I, I know everything there is to that. I don't need to engage with the church or become a member because I know everything there is to know. I'm young. I've experienced a lot. I'm old. I know more than you. That this is the arrogance that I fight. That this is the arrogance that I'm clinging to some, you know, past experience or past knowledge. We must stop formulating ideas and then coming to Scripture but we must commit to Scripture formulating our ideas. Mark Dever once said, do not mistake your random thoughts as God's Word. I cannot tell you how many times when I've been sitting down trying to have a biblical conversation about the character and nature of Jesus, and the reply has been, I could never follow a God or Jesus like you are describing and they don't walk away from claiming to be Christian. They just simply walk away from the relationship or from the church. I cannot believe that God would do blank. I cannot believe that Jesus would do blank. I cannot believe that Jesus would do blank or blank or blank. That I, I, I cannot wrap my mind that concept of Jesus. So I'm going to find a group of people or a church that will also believe in a lie about Jesus and about God and about his character and about his nature. What humility it takes for a man or a woman to recognize that they have been following a counterfeit version of Jesus. In churches, we see a lot of teenagers and kids come to Jesus, don't we? We don't see a lot of people in nursing homes. We don't see a, a lot of older people in the baptistry, do we? What humility it takes for a man or a woman to recognize even if they are up in years, that they have been following a counterfeit, created, imaginary version of Jesus. And get the, get the warning here. They are convinced. Like, it's not washy. Like, they, they've been dedicating their lives to this God, to this Jesus. That is not the God and Jesus of the Scripture. I've said it again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. And go back and read the story of Noah's Ark. It is not something that you should paint inside your kid's room. And if you've done it, it's not theologically correct. It's not Noah and all of his family all smiling and just pristine, clear water. It is a sea of dead people, of babies, of children. Does God change? Has He changed? No. God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus proves it. He is the Messiah. He is the appointed one. He is the anointed one. He is the King. He is the Lord of lords. And when we begin to understand His character and nature of even why and how He can do whatever He wants to do inside of the Noah story, then you can begin to worship God at a level and a magnitude and seeing His beauty, even though it's a wrestling and there can be tension there and there can be sharpening there and there can be doubts there and there can be unbelief there, but pressing into the Scripture and the God of the Bible, we begin to understand that it is much beautiful and Noah's story becomes about 
seeing it clearly becomes more about not just seeing a sea full of dead people, but understanding the promises and the nature and the character of an almighty God in saving a remnant of which he did not have to save at all. That's the beauty of our God. Do you know Jesus by hearsay? Or do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? We want to make Jesus more palatable, don't we? More warm. More accepting. We can never imagine God doing this or that. One of our greatest temptations is to make God like us. We see our character and our nature, and we try to impose that on the character and the nature of God. In Psalm chapter 50, this has probably been a verse that I've been hanging out with over the last several months, me and my wife in our personal study together. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 16 through 21, get this. But to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to recite my statute or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. If you keep company with adulterers, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Get this. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like you. But now I rebuke you. And I lay the charge before you. God is not a God that can be mocked. Jesus is not a, a God that can be mocked. Whether you're worshiping Baal, worshiping Pan, uh, worshiping a nation, worshiping money, worshiping popularity, whatever it is, brothers and sisters, we must war against, struggle against, fighting against, trying to put God into a human understanding that is palatable for us instead of pressing into his very character and nature whom he reviews only in his scripture. That's the God I want to know. That's the pastor of mission churches, that shepherd, that anointed one, that Messiah. That's what we want to make sure that is happening here at mission church is that though we may be small, we few, we band of brothers, we are together declaring, seeking after, wrestling against, pressing into each other to know not simply some application so you can have a better week or make your kids obey you better, but no, brothers and sisters, we are doing all of this so that we will ultimately do what the first part of our mission is, worship Jesus, not an imaginary Jesus, not a so-called created Jesus, not the Jesus of my, my particular um, understanding, but a, a Jesus that is revealed to us in the Scripture. And we wrestle with that. We know that Jesus is not like us, but we are to be like him. Last quote in prayer. Pastor David Platt. Who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you follow him. If you think Jesus is a good teacher, you will follow him like you would a good teacher. If you think Jesus merely had some good ideas then you will listen to what he says every once in a while. If you think Jesus is a good example, you will try to follow his example. However, if you believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah who came to earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, and to reign and rule over all as Lord, then that changes everything about how you live. The church, and I pray mission church, the church is made up of people who believe in that Jesus and know him intimately. Mission church members, visitors, guests, regular attenders, do you know this Jesus? Let's pray.